living well is the best revenge. So says Susan O'Million, who after the tragic murder of her own niece, responded by creating the My Avenging Angel workshops and writing the series of books called The Thriver Zone, including Living in the Thriver Zone. She's Dr. Brad Miller's guest on episode number 149 of the Beyond Adversity podcast. knew that this man had destroyed my niece. I felt he wasn't going to destroy my life or my family. So how could we get something good to come out of this? Hello, this is Dr. Paul Anderson, author of Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. And you're being empowered by listening to the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, helping you achieve peace of mind. Hello, good people. Welcome to Beyond Adversity with Dr. Brad Miller. Here we try to help you to navigate adverse life conditions and come out to a place of peace, prosperity, and purpose. Over at our website, drbradmiller.com, you can find lots of episodes of the episode where we help you to deal with depression and divorce and and, uh, and a death in the family, all these things which are coming to our lives. Our guest here today had a tragedy of a death in the family. Her own 19-year-old niece, her name was Maggie, was brutally murdered by a ex-boyfriend. And she, our guest Susan O'Million, had to respond to that. She's a lawyer, and she responded by working now to end violence against women. She's a trainer, and she's a motivational speaker, and she has spent her career helping women to reclaim their lives after violence, abuse, and trauma. When her 19-year-old niece was killed, Susan's work on behalf of women became more personal and immediate, and she vowed to help other women move on after abuse and create a new life for themselves. And in that process, she created the My Avenging Angels workshops, which includes her trilogy of books, on the entering the Thriver Zone, staying in the Thriver Zone, and living in the Thriver Zone. It's what she calls the process of learning to live well is the best revenge. This is a fascinating story, very pertinent to many people's lives. I think you're going to be very engaged with the in-depth conversation that I had with Susan O'Million. She blogs at thriverzone.com that's where you can find her and she it is my pleasure to have her guest today on the beyond adversity podcast with dr brad miller let's get into that conversation right now and we are happy to bring into our podcast great leaders and authors and people who have navigated some form of of adversity in their own right and have something to teach us and to lead us. And that is the case here today as we have Susan O'Million with us. She is a lawyer and she is an expert in working with folks who have experienced, particularly women who've experienced violence. 
She's a trainer in this area, motivational speaker. She has spent many years helping people reclaim their lives after trauma and violence and abuse. And she's an author of a series of books called the Thriver Zone series, which you can pick up and learn more about at thriverzone.com. And her latest book of this series is Living in the Thriver Zone, which helps people to live well as the best revenge. Susan, welcome to Beyond Adversity. Thank you, Brad. Lovely to be here. Awesome. Well, it is great to have you with us here uh, today on the podcast. And your work is in such an important area, which has to do with helping women particularly to uh, navigate and deal with abuse and trauma and drama. And what we're all about here in this podcast is to help people to navigate adverse conditions. And I found that uh, most people have a story to tell about how something has happened in their life. And I just would like for you to share a little bit about uh, how you come to focus on this area of the uh, helping people, helping women in particular who have experienced abuse. What happened in your life, which was pivotal for you to focus in on this? There were several pivotal moments. Uh, I have been doing this work since college, I'd say. In the 1970s, I was in college and the women's rights movement, very interested in that. I decided to go to law school to pursue that, to work on women's rights issues. I also had been, although I had no personal experience with sexual assault, I started doing some sexual assault victim advocacy. And I also, as an attorney, represented women in domestic violence cases uh, coming through divorce. Um, This is in the early 80s went to work for state government here in Connecticut, working in the governor's office and also the governor's budget agency and child welfare. And right after I left that job, something happened that although I was interested in this work and had done it as an advocate, that um, something happened in my personal life that really switched the kind of work I was doing. And that was mostly my own personal tragedy. In, In October of 1999, 21 years ago, this month, my niece Maggie, who was a 19-year-old college student at a very good school in Midwest, my family is originally from Michigan, my family's from Michigan, was killed by her ex-boyfriend. He had, she'd been, had a very short-term relationship with him. He, he refused to accept the end of the relationship. She didn't know he had a gun. He had never physically assaulted her before he killed her and then killed himself. Although I had done this work before, suddenly it became my personal mission, very immediate, Uh, because Maggie was now dead and we had to do something about this. And it really sort of changed the course of the kind of work I would do. And I think it became much deeper kind of work, not only for me, because I was on my own journey to move beyond this. And I wanted to do more than survive it. I knew that this man had destroyed my niece. I felt he wasn't going to destroy my life or my family. So how could we get something good to come out of this? And that really is where that pivotal moment almost 20 years ago that really took me to the work that I do now, helping women who, as Maggie could not, move on after abuse and take that journey I call that the journey from victim to survivor to thriver. Well, what a what a drama, what a trauma. And certainly, and you would probably know more about the actual statistics on this than I would, but it is a major problem, isn't it? Yes. Of abuse of women and violence, including murder and so on. And it's just a huge problem. Right. And I think somehow, although I had done this work for 20 years before Maggie was killed, 
I thought my family was the exception. We were going to be the other, that we were not going to be touched by this. And that was statistically, uh, if you look at any, any kind of data about the incidence of domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, homicide, domestic violence, homicide, the, the numbers are across all, all generations, all age groups, all cultures, all socioeconomic. I come from a blue collar background. So nobody is really, and I think that was one of the, one of the more startling things. I still really can't believe that my niece is gone although it's been 20 years, I guess in any kind of tragedy, it's like, it feels like it happened so long ago. And then it feels like it happened yesterday. And it's always, you know, there's always something that brings you back to that tragedy, that trauma. Um, my niece would have been 40 years old this, uh, this year. She and I have actually the same birth date uh, in August. That kind of struck all of us as a family. My God, she would have been 40. Look what she could have been doing. She wanted to be a lawyer. She wanted to have children and have a family. And that's really when it, you realize the impact of trauma, not only on people's lives, but all the attendant people around Maggie, all of her friends and family members, and even people that never met her that, that, I, that have been influenced by her life. Well, I'm sure her memory and her presence is a driving force in your work now. And I'm interested in some of the terminology that you use, Susan, in your work. You have a series of workshops called the Avenging Angel mm -hmm. Workshops, and then you state in your work that living well is the best revenge. Mm -hmm. So how we respond to drama and tragedy is so important. People can get stuck in bitterness and revenge and avenge. Right. Avenging. So use that terminology in your work, but I'm interested in how you come to terms with that. It, it seems like you are trying to help people uh, to respond a little differently than revenge and avenging in terms of punishment, something right. along this line. Unpack that for me a little bit. What, okay. what are you trying to get out here when you say you want to avenge and living well is the best revenge? Okay. So I think it started with me because as a trained attorney, although I never did criminal works as such, I mostly did work with women and family law in civil cases uh, when I was practicing as a practicing attorney, I guess you would call it. Because he, this man killed himself, I had this sense that the way the system is supposed to work is that to get not revenge, but to do something about this. So it, it will stop. And, and then we, no, there was, there was no justice in this case, was there? There's no, no. And in some way, you know, that he killed himself, we didn't have to go through a trial. And I have talked to people, homicide survivors. I now belong to a club that I never wanted to belong to, but I have had some mentors in the, the homicide survivor community. And they've told me it's really hard to go through that kind of a of a trial. It goes on forever. It, it's not really that healing. There really is no closure. So you have to find your own closure. When I started thinking about revenge, I Googled the word revenge and I got that, that quote, living well is the best revenge. And having worked with women in domestic violence, one of the things that I learned about that, the dy dynamics of that relationship, because it's power and control over one person over the other, the idea that the women could come and live well, the one thing that this man who had controlled them would not want them to do, that feels, that felt really freeing and releasing. So that it helped me to tell myself that the thing that I want to do is do the best I can here. And that's going to be my best revenge and I'm going to live well. And if I can help other women to see that as a goal, then I think we have uh, found something positive to come out of all this. Well, let's talk about how we can help women and others who are having this situation, because 
what we like to talk about here in those podcasts is help people can take whatever trauma or drama that they have Mm -hmm. or adversity and to get beyond it, to find a way. And one of the things that I believe that is important is people need to take some action. People need to do something. They can get, you know, they can get lost in your misery. You can get, get really bitter and just stay stuck. What do you think are some actions? Let's just put, let's just take a perspective of someone who is listening to this podcast, who is experiencing some form of abuse and is, looking for some direction. What are some action? What are something that they can do to uh, respond to this? Well, I think one of the things that in my niece's situation, she never really identified as a victim. I mean, the warning signs were there. The one sign that wasn't there that he had physically assaulted her or had the capacity to physically hurt her, but all the other warning signs were there. And, And part of my guilt about that is I knew those warning signs, but it seemed like Maggie was handling this Uh, okay. Um, She had left him. I think she went back to the room that night to see him one more time to tell him to leave her alone. I think she thought she could solve the problem all by herself. So I always tell women, whether you feel, you know, you've got every single warning sign on the list, physical, uh, mental, psychological, you know, financial abuse, go get help. You have to go get help. That's the first thing. And there, and unlike 20, 30, 50 years ago, there are programs, there are free programs, the hotline, the domestic violence hotline, you can Google it. You need to identify as a victim. You need to address the issue that you may, even if there's been no physical abuse in the marriage uh, or the relationship, any pushing, shoving, you know, threats or whatever, or, you know, guns or however this person might show power and control, you need to get help. Um, So identifying is that. And then the other thing that I try to teach women, I tend not to work with women right now who are in crisis. I found after my own uh, trauma with Maggie's death that I couldn't do that after Maggie. Every woman in the shelter was Maggie and I emotionally couldn't do that. So I really work with women who have gotten out on some level. Although I work with women who actually have been out for a number of years and they still don't feel like they're moving forward. Identifying as a victim, very, very important. Understanding that you will go beyond being a victim. You can, you will, you will, some women come to me, I've, I've always been a victim. I'm a really good survivor. I can survive anything. And I tell them that they're on a journey, that there is a place where you will struggle. We all have a struggle in our life. The question is, you're going to move beyond that. You're going to survive. And I want to see you do more than that. Are things, are things like denial and projection a part of the issues here? You know, denial, pretend they're projecting and say, I did something to precipitate Yeah, this. they blame and, themselves. Yeah. If, if only I wouldn't have gotten this relationship, not only in terms of themselves, but their children have been exposed to all this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I work with is just trying to get them into positive energy. Not to say that this, you know, didn't happen because it did. And not to say that, that it's not going to continue to have some impact on your life. Many of the women I work with, even after they have left the, the the abusive relationship or marriage, they get caught in custody battles and child support and, and all kinds of, of rigmarole that will pull them back. But to keep moving f- forward, what I also have learned for myself and, and also for the women I work with is that there's this negative voice in your head that will keep telling you all this stuff. And in fact, if you've been in an abusive relationship, the person who abused you may in fact have taken on that voice. You know, you're fat and stupid and no one will ever love you. you got to stay with me. And to mm. understand that's just one voice in your head and to begin to get that 
mind control, particularly for people who've been in controlling relationships where the manipulation is really intense and the belief that you, you're nothing and your self-esteem is really low. So to build that up and to start to say, okay, that's an action you can take to start to realize that there's a part of you that is, is worthy and deserving of all the good things and deserving of living well. And then to begin, as you were saying, to start taking other actions, to start to understand that there are desires and things you can start moving forward with. Some of the women, for example, need to go, if they have not been, been, they have not been working outside the home, need to get back to work. They need to get a better job. Um, They can go back to school and pursue some dreams, but they need to keep dealing with that resistance in their head that something is wrong with them, some overwhelming fear of rejection. And so I have put together a motivational model that helps them find those, those guideposts and to realize that if you can realize some of these dreams that I've had women in my groups come through my workshops and I have a continuing uh, program so that they can stay connected and start working on goals. They started singing again. They started painting again. They've gone back to school. They've, it's coming out of a different energy. And mm-hmm. do they fight with that negative voice every single day? Absolutely. But to bring up that, I call it the happy person inside, to bring that part of them up. I believe that part of us, and you know, because you come from a spiritual religion, I think it's a spiritual part of us. Well, let's get into that for a second. You, you mentioned the happy person inside, and I just believe there's a part of this, Susan, that has to do with we got to draw the resources. You mentioned about taking action, and you know mm-hmm. about uh, uh, about reaching out for help. One source of power to connect up with that happy person inside can be understanding that there is something greater than yourself, yes. that there is some uh, spiritual force. You can call it God. You can call it connecting with a higher power or whatever you want to do. But what role does having to do with some connection with some uh, force greater than yourself come into play in terms of this transformation that you're, that you're uh, talking about, to connecting to that happy person inside? Well, I, my experience is, is that many of the women, particularly women who've been through not just a domestic violence abusive relationship as an adult, they may have had, and and I think there's a word now that they've assigned to it in the clinical world called polyvictimization, that yes, they're, they're presenting problem to a domestic violence hotline is that I'm currently in an abusive relationship, but they probably will also con- would tell you that they've had a sexual assault in the past, or that child abuse was definitely, or they witnessed domestic violence as children or they have, have been victims of street violence. So the idea that they think that every part of them has been destroyed by all that's happened to them. The way I describe it is a part of you, it's been untouched. And I do agree. And some of them who have religious backgrounds, call it the divine, call it God, call it some sense of it, some party that cannot be touched. It has been trounced down and yelled at and screamed at. And maybe it's like a little tiny ember in their, in their psyche, right? Right now, but to bring that part up and to realize that you can rebuild that or you can nourish it again and that blame, you know, that I have destroyed everything and there's nothing. Uh, one of the exercises I do in my, in my workshops and also in my books is a survey of what I call limiting beliefs about yourself. Bad things always happen to me. Abuse has always been in my life. I can't do anything about it. Uh, there, there's no way I can create the life I want. Those kind of beliefs, which get stuck in our head and for righteous reasons there's lots of stuff going on that would that would feed those thoughts 
but they really are limiting beliefs and then trying to transform them into, and I use a lot of affirmations, you know, I am strong, I am, I, I can do this, beginning to get that part of them. So the inner, the inner life has to be uh, nurtured and fed by something, by interjecting yes. something greater than, than yourself. It might be reading a good book, a classic book, or taking your workshop or finding some input that can help to uh, bring about that inner voice. Or as simple as going and sitting on the beach for a few hours or taking a walk or, you know, mm-hmm. watching your favorite movies. And those are the those are the little things you can do to start building to, okay, so now I want to go back to school and look, I'm graduating. And I, you know, in that moment, I try to get them to see their goal as something they can achieve. And the last thing they can do is that celebration and then how, how to keep yourself motivated to go there. I, I think the other thing that we're sort of touching on, perhaps, uh, uh, that I want to say more, more specifically, I think you have to find some life of purpose out of all this. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, oddly enough, what happened to my niece in that moment of her death and the horror of it, some part of me said, oh my God, everything I ever did came to this moment. And it really began to define my purpose. And I think more and more we're finding people who have had terrible things happen to them and they, they found, find something good, some purpose to do it. Uh, I was really struck by the high school students uh, from Parkland, Florida, a couple yes. of years ago. They almost immediately got it. You know, okay, this mm-hmm. terrible thing happened and we know it's terrible and we're going to have to deal with that, that terror. But boy, we're going to go out there and fix this and talk about that and make people understand. And that transformation was much clearer for them. And they made it, and they made it impact immediately, didn't they? I mean, yes. and they knew it. They knew when they, they changed some of those laws and they got the school to do some things. The school, I mean, the school where, they, where this happened, they, they tore down the building. I mean, they were not going to put up with anything. Like, they're not going to put a patch over this. This yeah. is going to be, there has to be something. I always thought about Maggie's death is that this is a huge thing that happened. So what has to come from it is huge. It can't just be this little thing. Well, it also brings to mind that there was power in the using the Parkland students as an example that when tragedy struck of terrible devastation of many, many murders, I forget how many there was. Some of the kids were actually there. They saw their friends get killed. Well, what I'm trying to, part of what I'm getting at is then they bound together one to another. They right. had unity in their own purpose, not only just individual purpose, but with others. And so I wanted to go with you here in this Susan for a minute or two is the power, the healing power of positive relationships, especially right. relationships that have a, a healthy, loving relationship. People who have gone through abusive have had often that term love has often been, you know, uh, uh, skewed or messed up, right. you know, in such a way, but the power of loving, healthy uh, relationships to fuel transformation. And maybe you could say a word about that, about how people who are in abuse need to seek out then healthy relationships and others can speak into their life as well. Right. Let's... So the two things I'd say about that is I said, I do this workshop. It's a two day workshop. I decided from the very beginning by some, some idea in my head, some feeling, I guess, that I didn't want to say to the women, oh, nice to meet you. I'll see you later. 
I decided to have monthly follow-ups. So I've created a community of women where I never ask them to tell their story. I make sure they're safe, but they don't come to my workshop or my follow-ups to talk about what happened to them. What they do come and talk about is what's happening now and what's mm-hmm. positive. And they get they get that feed from each other. And they love to come, we call it the Thriver community and hang out because they know we're going to do positive things. And so, so I agree that creating those positive relationships, they don't have to be romantic or even, but to then start working on the relationship with other people, their children, particularly, because they have to heal some of that. And then I do have some women in the group over the long term that I've known them, some for 20, 15, 20 years, they have gotten into healthy, intimate partner relationships. And they have met people, mostly men, um, who have who have uh, given them a healthy relationship. Also, in, in those workshops, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but in those workshops, are the are the participants able to interact with one another as well yes. as with you? Yes, and and has that, has that I, been a, has that been a helpful piece for them to have community with with each other? I just finished a workshop in October, and the women who've been in my workshop in my community for a while, it's like, oh, who you know, who's coming to the program, and how do they do, and you know, what are they working on? Because some of them have similar you know similar goals. Like at the end of my workshops, and at the end of the materials that I work at in my books. Um, you have a, you set a new goal for yourself. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's a goal that you've been working on for a while, like I need to get a better job, but it comes out of a different energy. It comes out of that thriver energy. So, or, or go back to school or start painting again. And, you know, some of the goals are just to get their energy going and some of them are the positive energy going and some are to move their life forward. Connecting around all of that, then we have our success stories and we role model for each other. Oh, look what she did. She passed mm-hmm. that test. She's been working on really hard to get to get her, her her career going. Oh, look, she's got back to school. Oh, look, she's got a new place to live. Oh, look, she's been doing some painting now. So just the idea that that's role money. That was really important to me mm-hmm. coming out of as a homicide survivor. I had role models of people who, who were ahead of me in their grief and in and finding purpose that I could say, well, look, I can do what I can do what Bill did or or Shirley did, because that was what I think was missing for lots of these women was a role model, not only of health, not only of healthy relationships, but how you keep your life moving. Sounds like encouragement and accountability is a part of those the dynamic yeah. of those relationships as well, which is part of what helps people to move forward and not be stuck. Right. I call it the, the malaise of mediocrity, where we just get stuck in doing what we've been doing. Yeah. Uh, good, good, good. Let's talk about the 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 process, some of the process here. Now, I know you have a, a seven-step process mm-hmm. and part of your system here that you use, and I'm a believer that we need in order to move through adversity, you have to have some disciplines or habits or processes, things that we got to do, you know, we got to work to. So help us with that a little bit. Unpack some of your process that you use or some of the disciplines or uh, things that people can do to move out and to move through this thriver stage that you speak of. Um, Yeah. And, and um, although I work mainly with women who've come through abuse, I've also started working with men, uh, male offenders, actually, who, who, if you know anything about the world that we live in, many people, and I've also worked with female offenders, which is a smaller group, at least the women who've been identified, that um, their trauma histories are incredible. So in many ways, you know, we really have to address that to solve. It's a systematic, it's a systematic thing. It's not just bad men, good women, 
know, whatever it yeah. is, a whole system that's messed up. And when you start to pull it apart, you're like, oh, my God, no wonder why child abuse needs to be addressed as children or else they will live to be. Or many of the men I've worked with, I've done offender groups, intervention groups with male offenders. And if you ask them about their childhood, they will usually tell you about witnessing domestic violence or being abused themselves. I mean, it just it just perpetuates all the way through. Yeah. So the seven steps that I put together, I don't know exactly how I did this. I guess, you know, like you say, the higher, the higher powers sometimes guide you. Um, mm -hmm. So th the seven steps are really to give the women an idea that they're on a journey. That's the first step. And for some of them, when I put on victim to survivor to thriver on the board in the workshop, they're like, oh, I didn't know I was on a journey. I thought I was going to be a victim my whole life. And then another step I have is quieting that inner critic. We talked about that, bringing up the happy person inside. And then I have a motivational model after the next steps are to understand with that positive energy, you need to focus desire and you need to overcome any fear or resistance you have to get that desire like to go back to school or to get a better job or to make some changes in your life, realizing that at the end of that, that will be, um, I call it the real you, the divine, the, the thriver, the part of you. And for me, I realized a lot of what drove me throughout most of my life, even before Maggie was killed, is I need to do meaningful work. I went to law school and I was really clear, I didn't understand it at the time, that I wasn't going to go do corporate law or tax law. Nice thing to do, but it just wasn't going to make me happy. And I've always wanted to help and heal other people, accomplish something. And if you can match your, your desire to that goal, like I matched my desire to run a workshop, I didn't know how to run a workshop. I was like, I'm not a clinician. I don't know what I'm doing, but something told me that that was going to get me to my real you. It was going to make me feel like I was... I was helping other people that I was doing meaningful work and laying out this motivational model, which I think all of us follow. Actually, the question I ask the women is at what step are you stuck? Maybe you don't have enough positive energy to get going. Maybe your desire isn't focused enough. Maybe your fear is overwhelming you that resistance and, and limiting belief, or maybe you've lost touch with the real you when you can do all that. And the last step is to set a goal for yourself. And maybe it's a small goal to get the process going, get your energy moving, because once you get one of them done, that might fuel you back. So what they like about it is they like this idea that, yeah, they've been stuck and that I have a way to kind of extricate them, to get them to see that, no, that's just a place that you have been, that you're, you're body, mind, and spirit has thought you were stuck, but in fact, there's ways to get through it. The last book I put together, because I really wanted to, the living in the thriver zone is I wanted for these women to describe to me how this worked for them and to really show that um, from the beginning where they came in the workshop and where they, and, and how they define living well. Well, let's, let's go there for a second. You have a progression in your three books here. You got a number of books that you've written both uh, non, uh, nonfiction and fiction, it looks like. Uh, the first one was Entering the Thriver Zone, the second one Staying in the Thriver Zone, and one just released recently, Living in the Thriver Zone. And I think you've got some stories to tell. There are people who have basically gone through your work together. Mm -hmm. And I would like you to speak to the woman who may be listening to our, uh, our podcast episode today, who may be going through her problems or issues with uh, abuse of some sort, by helping us to understand the story of maybe a person or two that, that you have, uh, have worked with. Mm -hmm. And so tell us a story about a person who's had some transformation out of your 
who you've encountered here? One of them that's really very, very clear to me uh, is a woman, a young woman who came into my workshop, one of my first workshops almost 20 years ago, who wasn't singing when I met her. Uh, she was in, probably in her 20s. She wasn't singing. I asked her why she stopped singing, and she the she was in she was in a dating relationship that had moved from verbal to physical, and he was her musical partner. She didn't play the guitar at the time. Her background was more in piano, and she stopped singing. I remembered my niece Maggie when she was a kid, and she used to ask me about the cases that I was doing when I was litigating. And uh, I tell her the story and she's like, well, Aunt Susan, that's so unfair. We have to do something about that. And so it reminded me of this woman's situation. I'm like, that'd be so unfair. She'd never sang again. Watching her start to invite her to come and bring her guitar to one of our events and play a little bit and sing for us. I had never heard her sing. She had a beautiful voice. And she wasn't good at the guitar, but she started, and she not only started singing again, but she also started writing songs about her journey beyond abuse. So that was a really kind of clear example of a block that she had that she thought she'd never get through. And then how we began, the community around her began to, to manage that for her and to, or to give her a way to see it, that, the, that she could get through that block. And that gave her a purpose that she started singing with a purpose in mind, not just singing again. What a beautiful, what a beautiful metaphor to go from a place of uh, basically no voice and no song right. to sharing literally her voice. And herself. that's what I get to, I mean, I give women back their voice. There's another woman who came in who had had a brace on her leg because she had had a, a physical altercation with her, her then husband and, and her voice was so tiny and she was a very tiny woman, very petite woman. And I had to keep asking her to, to, uh, uh, speak louder during the workshop. And over the years that I've known her, she has now this big voice and she's, I'm a woman of power. And the idea that, and to inspire other women, well, if she can do that, look what I, I could do my little thing. So yeah, I think it's giving, giving back a voice. It's also giving, when I do this, when I ask the women what's important to them, like I said, meaningful work's important to me. One of the things that I find, women are not socialized to want power and status in our mm. society. Maybe okay. it's changing, but I said that maybe you want to empower yourself. And so they like that. They like that idea of empowering themselves, that they can now, particularly if they've been in a controlling relationship, whether it was an adult in the domestic violence or as a child, that they want to empower themselves. So to find that thing that really gets them moving. So you have, you're helping them to develop their own sense of purpose or mission right. themselves. Or to find well. what, what they love, you know, if it's painting or if it's, if it's art, or I have women who stop painting because, you know, the, the art teacher in high school uh, sexually assaulted them and they stopped painting at, at age 16. And they suddenly said, I'm going to do that again. So just trying to find that spark again, we were talking about that little flame, the part sure. of them that's been untouched, the part, the divine, the spiritual part to see if they could start to rebuild that ember. And then they take off and do these amazing things that I don't even know that I didn't even know they could do. Well, that's the thriving, right? That's the thriving. So as, a, as opposed to reaching out for revenge by, you know, right. violence of your own sort, going to get drunk or whatever it would be, you know, people have find all kinds of ways to right. respond to try to numb the pain, but to have revenge by thriving. Right. And I, and I think I have, I've, I have a work, I call it a working definition of thriver that I have in all my books. I think it's working because I don't think we've made it big enough yet. 
I don't think we, we, to really put we, to put people out there, not just women, but to put people out there and say, like the Parkland kids, I mean, you know, they got it really fast. That was, they were 17 or what, 16, 17. Um, right. I have women coming to me in their 60s and 70s who are just learning that there's a part of them that's been untouched and, and all the things that have happened to them cannot be wiped out, but they can be overcome, I guess. Is well, let's hear your definition of thriving. Okay, let's hear it. so it's in my book. <laughs> so um, a thriver is a happy, self-confident and productive individual who believes she has a prosperous life ahead of her. She's primed to follow her dreams, go back to school, find a new job start her own business or write her story. She believes in herself and her future so much that she will not return to an abusive relationship. Living well is her best revenge. She's not stuck in her anger or need for revenge. She's found a network of women who understand and share her desire to move forward after abuse. Well, that's a great thing. And I'm a big believer in building things like mission and purpose statements and goals and so on. And that seems to me like you're giving uh, women, particularly anyone, uh, an opportunity to connect up with that as a starting point for themselves so they can develop their own their own process. Yeah, and like I said, they do things that I sort of like, I always feel like they're on, they come to my workshop, they're like on the edge of a cliff and they're ready to, they're, they think that they can jump off, you know, and metaphorically without a parachute and land down their feet at the bottom of the canyon and they they act like they come into the workshop like they're really in a bad place, but they really are on the edge of that cliff. All I have to do is put my little finger on their back and they're over and they're and they're going for it. And sometimes it's like, you know, within 10 minutes of the workshop ending, they're sending me stuff on the email and they're writing me poems. And, you know, it's just the energy. I mean, I literally well, can watch some of the women transform before my eyes uh, during the workshop. And there's not there's nothing better than life transformation when you see it and oh, you're yeah. part of that process. That's, I'm a junkie for that. Yeah, you know, um, me, one, me too. That's why I'm yeah, right. help, helping people get through adverse conditions that get people right. stuck, including things like divorce and abuse, and help them to come to place. Yeah. I like to call it peace, prosperity, and purpose. So yeah. it's been it's been awesome to have you on with us here Thank today, you. Susan. Just a lot of great stuff here. A trilogy of books called The Thriver Zone, and you can connected with that at thriverzone.com. Is that the best place to get yeah, connected everything's, with you? Everything's there and some of the um, the women's stories too. So that'd be great. Well, it's been good, good to be with you today. And the key point here is just reclaim your life. If you're a woman in abuse, reclaim your life, find a way that you can not be absolved into remorse and to revenge that's based on abuse to yourself and hurting yourself and hurting others but to live well and to thrive. And so it's been a pleasure to have as our guest today, uh, Susan O'Million, the author of the Living in the Thriver Zone series, her latest book, Living in the Thriver Zone, a celebration of living well as the best revenge. Our guest today on Beyond Adversity has been Susan O'Million. Did you hear the voice that Susan Amelian gave to victims of sexual and physical and emotional abuse? Speaking on behalf, in a way, of her niece Maggie, who was murdered, she is now an advocate or gives voice to people who have gone through various situations of abuse. 
Hope that you heard that here today in our conversation and how her Thriver series of workshops and books is a helpful way to help people, especially women who've gone through abuse, to find their voice. And if there's anyone out there in our listening audience here in Beyond Adversity who needs this assistance, my encouragement to you is to speak up, take action to find a voice. You can find uh, Susan Amelia at ThriverZone.com. And I was touched by her mission statement, which I just wanted to share with you. It's about, about being empowered. Here's what she says. I am a woman of power whose mission in life is to be a catalyst for change for victims of violence against women. Today, I celebrate my life by building a community of strong, independent, productive women who have survived abuse and are thriving in well-being, love, and joy. Great statement there. And, of course, her she likes to say this, that living well is the best revenge. We don't get revenge, everybody, by being bitter, by being abusive to others, or by acting out in some ways. We need to take responsibility for our own self and know that adversity does happen, but we do not have to go bad with it. Here at the Beyond Adversity Podcast, that's what we are all about. I have a history in ministry and a history in trying to be helping people to find their pathway through adverse conditions, to find their life of peace, prosperity, and purpose. And that's the purpose of the Beyond Adversity Podcast. DrBradMiller.com is our website where you can find lots of back episodes of the podcast, which can be helpful to you. We deal with issues like we dealt with here uh, today of a death in the family. We also deal with things like depression or divorce or or disease or or debt. All these things are major factors in uh, in everybody's life, but how you deal with it makes a difference. And I hope that we can be helpful to you here at Beyond Adversity and at drbradmiller.com. Reach out to us, and so let's see how we can be helpful. I believe it's all about making a promise. You have to make a promise to yourself and in many ways to others that you will change, that you will not stay stuck, and that you will move forward. Keep moving. We have a process we call the 40-day way, which is about making, uh, taking action, drawing on a higher spiritual power, loving other people, and being self-disciplined, self-disciplined in your life. And that's what you need to do. Make a promise to take action. So until next time, friends, it's my pleasure to serve you here on the Beyond Adversity podcast. And remember, make a promise and keep a promise because there's power in a promise kept. Until next time, then, do all the good that you can.